mean? I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bare exoskeleton Contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com Timstesseract.com Want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it look. Hey, everybody out there in Mutiny Radio Land! It is two o'clock. It is time for some call me Tim. Uh, my guest today was supposed to be Sarah, my buddy from Denver, uh, but she doesn't usually remember. And I told her it was funny. I saw her at Bender's on Sunday, and I was like, "Remember, we're doing the interview." Yeah, we're doing the interview this week on Some Call Me Tim, and she was so drunk. And she was like, I need some food. And I was like, it's past nine. I can't make you tater tots. And because um, we're all closed up and it's crazy. And then she left, and I was like, don't forget on Wednesday. She's like, Tuesday. And I'm like, no, Wednesday at two. Tuesday. No, Wednesday at two. And then she, so she did it. Yeah, it's it's all good. I don't, I don't even remember. But I was hoping she'd come in today, but we actually have... Another guest scheduled for three o'clock. So we shall listen to some really cool music, I think, from two to three. And then the interview will start at three o'clock. This is Some Call Me Tim. I didn't put the music on because I was hanging out. We had a really fun AltaCast and talked about uh, Henry Wallace and... um, just humanitarianism and being human and racism and what's going on in our current government and what Henry Wallace said in the forties about it. Anyways, you know, it's all that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and it's okay. We're going to survive here at mutiny radio because we still believe in free speech, which I think is very important. And that is supposedly what we are based on free speech uh, and the freedom to bear arms. I saw the most hilarious thing this week with Sasha Baron Cohen. He's a new character on a Showtime show, and he made all of these gun-toting uh, people on the right. Um, he made them all talk about how children with guns was good. They were calling them kindergartians and teaching four-year-olds, uh, shoot saying that, oh, four-year-olds have such great uh, eyesight. They react so much more quickly to uh, death mayhem and the bad guys and good, good kids and bad guys. It was very, very funny. In fact, I think that I'll look it up so that we can actually listen to it here on Mutiny Radio because you guys, I think, will laugh too. Uh, but we do have a we do have a special guest coming in at uh, three o'clock, so that'll be exciting. This here I'll put down. It's Sasha Guns Kids. 
that should be enough, I think. Uh, Sasha, not Sash. Sasha Guns Kids is should. Okay, this is very, very funny. Uh, I laughed so hard. Shekhet Sair, my name, Colonel Iran Morad. I am the terrorist Terminator. In America, there is big problem of shootings in schools. The NRA want to arm the teachers. This is crazy. They should be arming the children. Yalla, let's go. Deadly weapons into the hands of America's school children. I needed the help of gun rights hero Philip Van Cleef. My next guest is a gun rights advocate who says the Bushmaster semi-automatic rifle, the type of rifle that Adam Lanza used to kill 20 children and six more adults, is quote a blast to shoot with. Guns are fun. Some of them are much more cool than others. Are you proud of what you said? It's just a fact. In America, there have been a lot of shootings in the school and in the university. What do the liberals say is the reason for this and this solution? Well, they blame it on guns. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because <laughs> They people... blame it on the guns? Yes. Sugar. Yes. It's no sugar. It is. We start a program in Israel for kindergartens. Okay. We train them from the age 16 down to the age 3. Yeah, well, I, I think it would be a, a good idea. We, we've been pushing something along this line for years, but really haven't gotten any traction with it. We were thinking 7th or 8th grade. You're talking much younger than that. My son was in the very first program. May he rest in peace. Uh, he died doing what I love. Yeah, they haven't quite developed uh, what we call conscious, where you, you, you feel guilty about doing something wrong. That's developing, that you're learning right and wrong. If they don't, haven't developed that yet, they could be very effective soldiers. This year, in our state government, they had a bill put in that would have made it illegal for someone four years old to 12 years old to have access to a gun. Uh, we, we, killed, we, we killed the bill. They try to stop four-year-old children from having access to guns? Yes, yes. What is the logic that these people come up with? They just think that children uh, can't handle them. We want three-year-olds who are real experts at what they're doing, not three-year-olds who are reckless. Yeah. And we don't teach two-year-olds because they call it the terrible tools for yes, a reason. there's a reason, yes. So I would like you to help me do instructional video for three-year-olds. Okay. Shalom, children. My name is Ran Morad. I'm here to show you that guns, when used responsibly, with training from grown-ups, can help keep you safe in your school. Here to help teach you is Philip Van Cleef. Not every strange man you meet gonna be friendly and non-threatening like me. Today we're gonna teach you how you can stop these naughty men and have them take a long nap. That's right, and that's why you're going to meet a friend of mine. His name is Papi Pistol. Now, Philip, will you show us 
auto feed Papi Pistol. To feed him, take his lunchbox and push it into his tummy like this. Just remember to point Puppy Pistol's mouth right at the middle of the bad man. If he has a big fat tummy, point at that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's fun. Okay. Puppy Pistol is part of a whole group of new friends that your parents can get you called Gunnimals. Wouldn't you love to meet this little gunny rabbit? He's ready to put the naughty man on a very long time out. How about the magical Uzicorn? Well, this is one for the girls. It's a lovely little unicorn that you can play with. Dino Gun can stop an entire crowd of bad men. And Tots, you gotta learn that Dino Gun eats and spits his candy really, really fast. Rocket Ship RPG will take you to the moon. Or rather, the bad guys are going to the moon if they attack your school with a truck full of big, scary fireworks. And introducing BFF, a starter gun for infants 24 months and under. BFF is so easy to fire, even a baby can use it. BFF wants to help you. Pull the string on a bad guy. Make bang, bang. Aim at the head, shoulders, not the toes, not the toes. Fire! Head, shoulders, not the toes, not the toes. Fire! Eyes, ears, and belly, and nose. Head, shoulders, not the toes, not the toes. Fire! Now that I had a common sense training video, it was time to take it to the nation's capital. I just arrived in Washington to see if someone would back my kindergarten's program. I needed to find politicians who would fight for the Second Amendment right of toddlers to bear firearms at preschool. So I met with lobbyist Larry Pratt, director of Gun Owners of America, which have 1.5 million brave members. The evil's in our hearts, not in the guns. Do you think the liberals are using these school shootings to further their anti-tragedy agenda? They're trying, but it's, it's not that hard to find a student who does think that way because that's what they're being taught in the schools. We actually found out that in schools, it's not only important to arm the teachers, it's important to arm certain gifted children. Oh, that's great. We train from 16-year-old uh, up to four years old. This segment of the conversation would absolutely cause heads to explode here in this country. Why? Because they will be shot? Or? Uh, because that they're, uh, they're so prejudiced against young people having guns, and especially in a school. The only thing that stops a bad man with a gun is a good boy with a gun. Yeah, uh, even a good toddler. Exactly, a toddler, really. The great thing about toddlers is they don't have any fear of guns. This fear is really given to you by the media. That's a good point. Well, if they hear somebody uh, shouting Allahu Akbar, they're likely to instinctively go for that gun. We had one problem with this. There was a Muslim gardener who was praying and he said Allahu Akbar and he got, <laughs> he got shot. Praying <laughs> uh, <laughs> in... Pray in secret. <laughs> Women need a gun, you know. Uh, my wife, she have a gun, and uh, she shot me once. You know, what can I do? I get horny in the middle of the night, but it's not a uh, rape if it's your wife, eh? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That probably won't be on the uh, uh, video we send to the hill. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> what do I need in order to introduce this program into America? There are a few members of Congress that I think would be as receptive to what you're doing as 
I have been, I'd be very happy to see if we could get them interested to set some time aside. Great. Let's see if we can stop these anti-gun people from getting everyone killed. Yeah, yeah, they've got blood on their hands. Now that I had this prat on board, I was welcomed into the halls of Congress, where I sat down with the House representative and outlined my common sense proposal. Oh, the, the, you want me to say on television that I support three and four year olds with firearms? Is that what you're asking me to do? Uh, yes. You can Typically, members of Congress don't just hear a story about a program and then indicate whether they support it or not. I support the kindergartens program. We in America would be wise to implement it too. It's something that we should think about in America, about putting guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens, good guys, whether they be teachers or whether they actually be uh, talented children or highly trained preschoolers. Maybe having made young people trained and understand how to defend themselves in their school might actually make us safer here. A three-year-old cannot defend itself from an assault rifle by throwing a Hello Kitty pencil case at it. Our founding fathers did not put an age limit on the Second Amendment. The intensive three-week kindergarten course introduces specially selected children from 12 to 4 years old to pistols, rifles, semi-automatics, and a rudimentary knowledge of mortars. In less than a month, less than a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. Toddlers are pure, uncorrupted by fake news or homosexuality. They don't worry if it's politically correct to shoot a mentally deranged gunman, they'll just do it. The science behind this program is proven. At age four, a child processes images 80% faster than an adult, meaning that essentially, like owls, they can see in slow motion. Children under five also have elevated levels of the pheromone Blink-182, produced by the part of the liver known as the Rita Aura. This allows nerve reflexes to travel along the Cardi B neural pathway to the Wiz Khalifa 40% faster saving time and saving lives. When it comes to the safety of our children, the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good kid with a gun. A good kid with a gun. A good child with a gun. Happy shooting, kids. I need a hospital. I need a clinic. I need a reason not to be a cynic. And how does I call you, like? You can call the, me Donald. For real. Okay. It's Trump, in it? Right. Remember at the beginning, what are you doing? So how long has there been businesses? Well, business started from the day one, from early in the, uh, in the world. And what was they doing business in back in the day? Many, many, many years ago, hundreds of millions of years ago, people were doing business and they were trading in rocks and stones and other things. Who would want to buy rocks? I don't know, man. You got you to gotta ask them that. I've got some business idea that I just want to tell you about and I'll be a fool if... Very quickly. What is the most popular thing in the world? Music. No. Tell me. Ice cream. Okay. Everyone has it. And what is the problem with ice cream? I have no idea. It drips. Okay. So me idea is what? Yeah, to make a drip proof ice cream. No. Oh, that's a fucking brilliant idea this. 
or whatever, you ain't going to come out with that, though. No, I, I promise you I won't. Well, my idea is to come out with just like these ice cream gloves that make the ice cream not go on your hands and make it all well sticky. And also keep your hands warm okay. when when you is eating the ice cream. Okay. Is you win or is you win? Okay. Well, it sounds like a good idea, and I hope you make a lot of money. Good luck, folks. It's been nice. Trying to scrape up a down payment for a little fixer-upper in your neighborhood? Take a look at my next guest. There's a report around Wall Street that this is what he has in mind. This is Donald Trump, 33 years old. And some people think that he wants to buy the World Trade Center, the 110-story Manhattan skyscraper that anyone can pick up if they've got the coins. Donald Trump, as I say, is just 33 years old. He took his father's rather modest by current standards real estate empire in Brooklyn and expanded it considerably. He now has an apartment for sale in a new Trump building called the Trump Tower going up on Fifth Avenue. There it is. You can buy this apartment, one floor of it, one whole floor of that building, that is, $11 million altogether. You, uh, you bought some prized properties at the bottom of the New York market in the 1970s. Uh, inner cities have been pure gold since that time. Why? Because replacement costs have just gone up so much? Well, no, not really. I had a great faith in New York. Primarily, our purchases have been in New York. And at the, about five years ago, New York was not considered very hot, and cities in general weren't considered too hot. And we purchased the old Commodore Hotel, and we've reconverted that now into about a $110 million Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is opening up next week in New York City. And uh, we've made some other purchases that have been uh, fine. Is that your general advice to people who are interested in real estate investment, though? Look to the inner cities, look to old buildings and doing something with them? Well, I like the inner cities. I see the inner cities as being sort of a wave of the future now. I think with the, with the problems of fuel and the gasoline shortages and everything else and the transportation, especially in the major cities such as New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, I see the inner cities as being probably, in terms of a real estate or in a real estate sense, probably the most viable investments. But it's going to be expensive. Apartments in New York City alone, one bedroom, not very large at all, $650 a month. That's tough for the working class, that's isn't right. it? And that's actually now a very low price. In fact, if you have any of them available, I'd like to make I, I know where I can sell a thousand of them at that <laughs> price. Right. Actually, that is a low that's price. Right. That's really a very low price now. There, I know of uh, a couple of buildings, for instance, an Olympic Tower, which is on 51st Street and 5th Avenue. Apartments are are being rented by the condominium owners for five and six thousand dollars a month, and they're one bedroom and two bedroom apartments. So it's uh, when you say six hundred dollars, even in other sections, it's almost becoming a low price. What happens to some of the old buildings in the inner cities that are works of art? You were recently the object of a lot of controversy because you ordered destroyed some sculptures on the uh, building that you bought that the Metropolitan Art Museum wanted. Why did you have those destroyed first of all, and what happens to the look of a city? Well, what we had is we we purchased a site with an old department store on it, the old Bonwatola store on 5th Avenue and 57th Street next to Tiffany, and we had to really take the building down. And there were many people that didn't want us to take it down. They wanted to try and preserve the building. But the building really was not worth, as an art building or an art deco building, it really was not worth very much. And we did take it down, and there was somewhat of an outcry. But I think that's generally subsided now, and I think people like what we're doing and like the building that we're putting in its place. But couldn't you have saved just those sculptures that you had broken? Well, it would have been very, very dangerous to have saved them. They were, uh, they weighed two tons, they were 15 feet high, they were about two and a half feet thick, and if they would have fallen, they could have fallen the opposite way. If they fall into the building, you don't worry. If they fall out toward Fifth Avenue, people could have been very badly hurt and killed, and it just, to me, it was not worth it. And they've really proven not to be very valuable art structures right now. And uh, 
We've had appraisals done. In fact, even after the fact, we've had appraisals done, and they've turned out not to be very valuable. Mr. Trump, what's left in your life? You're 33 years old. You're worth all this money. You say you didn't say that you want to be worth a billion dollars. No, I really don't. I just want to keep busy and keep active and be interested in what I do, and uh, that's all there is to life as far as I'm concerned. I really am not looking to make tremendous amounts of money. I'm looking to enjoy my life, and if that happens to go with it, that's fabulous. Give me one final bottom line. In five years, the price of a hotel room in New York City will go for? It could be $1,000 a, a night. Start saving your money, folks, just one night. We are having some technical difficulties, which is totally understandable when you try to do you know, ad hoc reporting and getting information to you as fast as we possibly can and making sure that it's accurate at the same time. So Donald Trump is on the line. I mean, we know him as the man behind lots of real estate in Manhattan and, of course, uh, Donald, I understand you were actually a witness to what happened this morning. Well, I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw this huge explosion. I was with a group of people, and I, I, I really couldn't even believe it. And even, I think, worse than that, for years I've looked right directly at the building. I'd see the Empire State Building in the foreground and the World Trade Center in the background, and now I'm looking at absolutely nothing. It's just gone, and it's just hard to believe. Donald Allen Marcus here. Uh, your building is, uh, the Trump Tower, is uh, one of the uh, great tourist attractions uh, in the world. It's well known universally. Are you taking any uh, precautions there in light of what happened at the World Trade Center? Well, Alan, we've always had, as you know, very, very strong security, but there's very little you can do about planes crashing into a building. I mean, you look at Larry Silverstein, who's a terrific owner in New York and a very good friend of mine who I just called. I was very worried about him because I assume maybe he was in the building. He took possession of the building one week ago. As you know, he just bought the World Trade Center. Right. And uh, he was in his office, and he was getting ready to move into the World Trade Center over the next two weeks. So when I just spoke to him, there's nothing you can do when people are going to be bombing planes at your building. Now, Donald. I guess maybe the world is going to be changing, and maybe you're going to have F-16s flying all over the city, etc. But... It's a pretty tough situation. Donald, uh, you have one of the landmark buildings down in the financial district, 40 Wall Street. Uh, did you have any damage or did you know what, what's happened down there? Well, it was an amazing phone call I made. 40 Wall Street actually was the second tallest building in downtown Manhattan. And, and it was actually before the World Trade Center was the tallest. And then when they built the World Trade Center, it became known as the second tallest, and now it's the tallest. And I just spoke to my people, and they said it's the most unbelievable site. It's probably seven or eight blocks away from the World Trade Center, and yet Wall Street is littered with two feet of stone and brick and mortar and steel. And there are thousands of people walking over the, the debris over the Brooklyn Bridge, where they're sending them out over the Brooklyn Bridge to Brooklyn, and then I guess they're going to have to figure out how to get home from there. But they have between a foot and two feet of debris uh, right in front of a building that's probably, you would say, Alan, six or seven blocks away. Donald, this is Roland Smith. Uh, hi, Roland. You know, hi, how you doing on this kind of day? You know, at some point, we're going to put all this behind us, and you as a visionary, particularly in, uh, in New York real estate, what do you think that we ought to do as a city, as a people, uh, when all of this gets, when the morning stops, when, when the dead are, are honored, and uh, 
and we've found out what caused it and maybe corrected it. What does the city need to do? Well, I guess the big thing that, that you really will have to do is never forget. You just can't forget that something like this happened. I was so disappointed when they closed the stock exchange, but of course, at some point, you had no choice. You know, when they initially announced it was closing, because you want to just say, the hell with it, you're going forward, nothing's going to change. But the fact is, something has changed very dramatically. And I think one of the very sad things is going to be when you look at the skyline of New York, which has become so emblazoned in your own memory, and you look in, at the skyline of New York and you see these buildings, these two buildings, whether you love them or don't love them, they were a great part of the skyline. And then when you look at the skyline after 2001, and you're going to see a skyline without these two buildings, you're going to say, what happened? People won't believe it. You know, when you show your children or your grandchildren in years to come what New York looked like in the year 2000, and then what New York looked like just a year later, they're going to say, what happened? Hey, Donald, it, uh, in, the year in, in the year 2000, Donald, you considered running for president. If, if, if you had done that and if you had been successful, what do you think uh, you'd be doing right now? Well, I'd be taking a very, very tough line, Alan. I mean, uh, you know, most people feel they know uh, uh, at least approximately the group of people that did this and where they are. But, um, boy, would you have to take a hard line on this. This just can't be tolerated, and it's got to be very, very stern. This is, as you and I were discussing before, Alan, this was probably worse than Pearl Harbor. Many more people are dead, and, and you know, they don't know. They have no idea. But... Uh, I have somebody that was down there who witnessed at least 10 people jumping out of the building from 70 and 80 stories up in the air. I mean, you probably have 25 or 30,000 is the number I've heard, but I would think would be much more than that. I think the most of the damage will be caused not by even in the building in terms of the people dead, but by the people on the streets from falling debris. Donald, you're probably the best known builder, uh, particularly of, of, of great buildings in the city. There's a great deal of question about whether or not the damage and, and the ultimate destruction of the buildings was caused by the airplanes, by architectural defect, or possibly by bombs or, or aftershocks. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it was an architectural defect. You know, the World Trade Center was always known as a very, very strong building. Don't forget, that took a big bomb in the basement. Now, the basement is the most vulnerable place because that's your foundation and it withstood that. And I got to see that area about three or four days after it took place because one of my structural engineers actually took me for a tour because he did the building. And I said, I can't believe it. The building was standing solid and half of the columns were blown out. I mean, so this was an unbelievably powerful building. Uh, if you know anything about structure, it was one of the first buildings that was built from the outside. The steel, the reason the World Trade Center had such narrow windows is that in between all the windows, you had the steel on the outside. So you had the steel on the outside of the building. That's why when I first looked, and you had big, heavy I-beams. When I first looked at it, I couldn't believe it because there was a hole in the steel. And this is steel that was, you remember the, the width of the windows in the World Trade Center, folks. I think, you, you know, if you were ever up there, they were quite narrow. And in between was this heavy steel. I said, how could a plane, even a plane, even a 767 or 747 or whatever it might have been, how could it possibly go through the steel? I happen to think that they had not only a plane, but they had bombs that exploded almost simultaneously because I just can't imagine anything being able to go through that wall. Most buildings are built with the steelers on the inside around the elevator shaft. This one was built from the outside, which is the strongest structure you can have and it was almost just like a uh, like a can of soup. You know, Donald, we were looking at pictures all morning long of that plane coming into uh, building number two, and when you see that, 
approach the the far side, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a millisecond, the explosion pops out the other side. Right. I just think that it was a plane with more than just fuel. I think, obviously, they were very big planes. They were going very rapidly because I was also watching where the plane seemed to be not only going fast, it seemed to be coming down into the building. So it was getting the speed from going downhill, so to speak. Uh, it just seemed to me that to do that kind of destruction is even more than a big plane because you're talking about taking out steel, the heaviest caliber steel that was used on a building. I mean, these buildings were rock solid. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing thing. It's, this country is different today and, and it's going to be different than it ever was for many years to come. Very profound statement and very true. Donald, uh, one last question for you. Uh, given the, the, the magnitude of, 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 of how much of American commerce took place within the Twin Towers, what do you, as you're an expert on this, what do you think is going to be the fallout over the next many several weeks, months, and even years, given what we have lost uh, in terms of those buildings going down and, and all that was within it? Well, I, I, as an example, Alan, and you might use them too, but I have an insurance company that was on the 102nd floor of the World Trade Center. They're gone. I don't know who's gone. I don't know anything other than their offices are no longer there. They're wiped out. Um, the Morgan Stanley Group, you know, Morgan Stanley, a big, powerful firm, they had 50 stories in the building, gone. I mean, you're talking about some firms that are just gone. Now, Morgan Stanley, in that case, had a lot of its offices in Midtown, and they had about half downtown. Morgan Stanley's a big, powerful firm. They're gone. Many firms had all of their offices, as you know, in the World Trade Center. It was 8 million square feet. 8 million square feet is the size of some cities. And we had 8 million square feet of the world, 4 million in each building. They were huge buildings, not only in height, but, you know, each, each floor was 50,000 feet. They were the monstrous floors. Each floor was almost a, a city in itself. And they
not time to make a change Just sit down, take it slowly You're still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to go through Find the courage, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me I am old, but I'm happy
is not is it nope hey interesting This is the second hour of Some Call Me Tim here on MutinyRadio.fm. Uh, I guess I'm going to be interviewed uh, for a, some sort of film thing that's happening in the world. Uh, we're here at Mutiny Radio. We're going to get right started. We've been listening to the 80s. We've been listening to awesome 80s. Me and June Park going to have a little conversation here about stuff. Uh... I mean, I, I don't know how you want to get started and get ready. We can do it. Do we do we like music behind us or, or do we not like that? Just it doesn't matter for you guys because you're not going to hear it. But on the radio, I like it on the radio. We're going to leave it in. 
thanks. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's some calming time. I like to, when we talk on the radio, I like to have a little bit of music behind because I feel like it adds just a little bit of um, auditory interest and helps take out those like B's and P's and funny popping noises that people can get when they are, ta- are talking. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, so we're, uh, we're, what's the name of the, what's the name of what we're filming? Um, the current project title is called This Is Your Laugh. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's very very much subject to change once depending on people's yeah. reactions. So no, you have a good reaction. So yeah. that's that's a that's a plus one for that for that name. It's really it's cute. I've had it, I've been carrying it for a while, so it's one of those things where, like, five years ago, it made sense as a title, but depending on what shape the film becomes, you know, that title could change. Right, and you want it to be an actual film, like a big old, <laughs> big old hour and a half long thing. You sit in the movie theater and you're like, yeah. I hope so. We're looking at yeah, feature length, like seventy to eighty documentary. Do. Um, but you know, depending on what market's available for this kind of film, sometimes you have to cut it down. Like PBS wants it, you have to cut it down to like a 53. Is comedy that hot right now? Everywhere, like this is. I mean, has stand-up had this kind of new resurgence because of Netflix or because of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, from what I've read, which I'm not a very well-researched person, there is a resurgence in, in documentaries. Netflix is buying up a lot of kind of like what would be considered new and you know different properties. Hit. But, I mean, I don't know about hip. Um, but anyway, my name is Chris Holstein, by the way. Chris Holstein, yeah. <laughs> if in case anyone is Why wondering. Why does it say not Chris Holstein on your shirt? Why is this your... <gasps> it's your merch because when they wear it, they're not Chris Holstein. Yes. I made I made these t-shirts in like 2000, 2003. And yes. I just... I w- I'm still am a very big Magritte, uh, Rene Magritte fan. Oh, the yeah, artist. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. My favorite Belgian surrealist. Exactly. He's my favorite yeah. exactly, as well. Say it's not on peep. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I made these shirts in the vein of that. I was like very, you know, I was in college. I'm like, oh, what's what's cool? Magritte, okay, I'll make these shirts and it's so edgy. And then I have a few friends that wear them, but I never see them around. So it just never gets too awkward. But I do feel awkward when I'm standing next to someone wearing the shirt. I like the, uh, <laughs> I, my favorite painting by Magritte is uh, Le Therapiste, the therapist. And it's a guy with a hat and, a, and he's sitting there, but his jacket is open. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a bird inside of him or there's a, no, there's a beautiful blue sky in him. And then there's a dark, and it's a la therapist. Okay. Like his jacket is open, but you can't see his face because his hat is on his jacket. Right. The hat's just there's no head. There's, there's no head. There's, no, there's nothing inside. Just this openness. It's open space. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. I'm so bad with the names of his paintings, but there's there's one that I really want to create visually, and it's it's a woman just standing or sitting at a table, and she has a candle in front of her, and the candle is projecting a blackness, and oh. so instead of light, there's just black like this black aura from the cam- candle, sure. and I've always been curious whether you could photographically rep- replicate that like in real life. Right. <laughs> to make well, it's yeah, it's the that's surrealism. It's the circumventing of, <laughs> exactly. of reality and making it like making the impossible possible. Right. Right. Love it. Um, but yeah, so I um, I've been been wanting to get back into stand up, get into stand up comedy for a long time, and I figured if I was going to do it, I would like to document the process. So sure. I've had a couple camera operators following me around, and they're um, they don't follow me around all day. I can't afford that. Um, <laughs> but like for interviews <laughs> and for like when I do key show. sets, I like you know I like to have them around. And when they're not around, I pull out my cell phone and film my sets just for you know purposes of getting better i see i can i can never film i've never been good at filming myself and i've never liked seeing myself on film <laughs> i have a face for radio i hate i hate it i can do still pictures and i'm like fine with it because i know how to mug like i can look sure. at the camera or whatever but like with this whole like live tv thing uh, i don't like looking at myself and i i mean even recording sets in the beginning of comedy i used to be pretty like i 
I recorded every set and I listened to all of them. Sure. Um, at least my first hundred sets. And that happened relatively quickly. That happened in like under six months. Oh, wow. Um, but I stopped because I do so much comedy here on the radio that's mm-hmm. already recorded that it just doesn't make sense for me to record what I'm already recording and right you know because it's already here but then when I'm somewhere else like last night I wish that someone would have recorded my set like my I have a dumb phone so I can't actually record sets anymore because I don't believe in technology I mean I believe in it I just don't (laughs) like it um but my dumb boyfriend didn't tape it and it was my seven year anniversary of comedy on the same stage where I did comedy for the first time seven years ago because that's how calendars work uh, so and I did seven minutes on the uh. amnesia stage which was and I, I only did three minutes my first time seven years ago and I mm-hmm. thought I thought oh I'm a genius but it was that it, the first time I did stand up so I met a bunch of comedians and I said how do we do this how do I do it and they said okay start writing and when you have five punchlines, that's three minutes. And I was like, oh, all right, five punchlines. So I did it. I had five punchlines and I did three minutes. And I was like, oh, David, David. <laughs> and everybody was like, oh, they, people had thought I'd done it before, but it was because I came from a poetry background. So, I, I mean, open mics for poetry are, were also very common in the mid thousands and people were very pretentious and very happy about their smartitude. And so I'd get up on stage and do poetry and, um, <laughs> And no, sometimes people would laugh because I was crafting language to create an emotional response, sometimes laughter, sometimes, you know, crying. I mean, no one wants to hear the poem about my third abortion, but like the joke is great. I've only had two abortions. The third is for comic effect. But like, so, but that was the thing is that like, if I hear another like poem about someone's abortion, I'm like, stab pencils in my eyes. I don't want it. Right. And so I, I made this switch to comedy because I can still be political, but I craft the emotional response around laughter specifically. And so then like I'm using, you know, writing and I'm being, I'm being political and language is political and I'm doing all of that, but I'm not being a pretentious dick bag sure. like I was when I was a poet. And I, the, the, the thing is that now as a comedian, I never feel like I bomb because I came from poetry where nobody's, as long as they're right. paying attention. Right. So I feel like it's not a bomb if, and it's, new comedians, this is like a thing. You have to change your perspective. People aren't going to laugh at you all the time. But as long as they're not getting a beer, talking to their friend, or looking at their cell phone, right. and they have you have their attention, you're winning. They could be laughing on the inside. They could be chuckling to themselves. They could be elbowing their friend. If they're listening, you're winning. They don't have to be like, ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sure. So it's just about changing your perspective of what you want the audience to give you or what you're trying to elicit from the audience. So I don't know. Why do you do, do, why do you do comedy? Do you do it to be political or do you do it to just be funny? Um, most, mostly to try and be funny. I mean, I, I, I've actually kind of made a thing about like, I'm going to let smarter, more engaged people do, do political comedy. Just because it's 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 very difficult in one way, and it's also very easy in, in another way. Especially right now, like it's very easy Shooting to make fish jokes. In a barrel, yeah, but I sure. but for me, it's like I don't. I mean, you know, I don't find a lot of what I see on the news funny anymore. It's, it's very it's, sad. It's, it's mostly causing sad. me anxiety and stress. I agree with that. <laughs> and and I know people need a release from that, and that's why we have the people that make very good political comedy uh, that are not me. <laughs> um, but I, I would curious. I didn't know you came from uh, uh, poetry first. Yeah. Because um, one thing I'm looking for for myself and just for the bigger picture of like, you know, how much truth is in comedy? And I'm curious. How do you, do you feel like there's more truth uh, from uh, from the the person in poetry or comedy? 
Oh, definitely in comedy. Uh, poetry is all a front. It's all a game. <laughs> you can... No, I mean, it's... There's a couple different modes in poetry. There's the, you don't understand me. I'm smarter than you. Sure. You don't, and I'm not going to explain it. I'm T.S. Eliot. Oh, okay. yeah. I'm going to put fucking Greek shit at the front of my poem <laughs> that does no, like, footnote, nothing. What does it mean? What is the wasteland about? Like, I like Proof Rock. I got that one, all right? He's talking about a whorehouse, and that's great, and I got the whole... It's come and go speaking of Michelangelo and all this stuff okay got it and I like the cadence that he was doing but when they get so smart when you're too smart for and I felt like I have an MFA in poetry and so in school it was like I'd have to get really high to like understand some people's poetry and then I'd get it but some of it was just like you're just trying to pretend you're smarter than me so then what I did is I started doing this thing called flarf where you take um it takes the onus off yourself for the words. You find words from other places and you craft them together like a game. So I went to Descartes. Like most of my um, thesis, master's thesis, it's divided into three parts of like pretentiousness. But the part in the middle is I just flarfed Descartes. So I got a Descartes book called um, Concerning Things That Can Be Doubted. Um, what a great fucking title. That's what I titled my um, my master's thesis, actually, was Concerning Things. I mean, the whole thing was just me stealing. And it was a game. It's how smart am I? Well, I took this thing and I took it all apart and I pieced it back together. And it's, so it sounds super smart because I'm flarfing Descartes. I mean, come on. How can you not? And people were like, wow, Pam is really deep. Uh, and then there's the people that are like, you know, the cheap poetry, like romanticism and lyricism and what's become, you know, the Britney Spears-isms and what happens in pop music and all that just sort of like, which isn't truth and beauty. It's just like regurgitation of what's pop culture-y and blah. Sure. Um, and then there's like honest philosophy. And I think that, I don't know, I try to be philosophical. but And that's what I try to do in the comedy is that um, language is political. People are listening. I get so angry in the world and I don't know how to express it. Right. I mean, I'm, I, I I have such a chip on my shoulder about women not being equal to men. It is so pervasive and it always has been in every moment of my life. I wish I was a boy. I only have one transgender moment when I was 11 and I was like, if I was a boy, I'd be a famous ballerina because I was a mediocre girl ballerina. But if I would have been a boy, I would have been fucking great. And I loved ballet, but I was never good enough because I was too fat or whatever. And I was like, put me in the boys part. Let me lift. I'll fucking do it. I don't, I didn't say fucking back then because I was very Christian, but I was always very, very upset that if there was, I was bossy because I had something to say. And it was always like, you know, I'd always raise my hand and be like, I know the answer. I know the answer. And they'd be like, you can, we know, you know the answer, sweetie. And I'm like, but I want to prove I know the answer. I'm sorry. And it was just not like appreciated that I was a girl that like, I just want the same rights as a boy. Like, I just want to be able to be, even now, like I own this business, right? And when I make a decision, a decision, someone forms a committee. When a man makes a decision, people do it. When a woman makes a decision, people form a fucking committee. And why is that still happening? Why am I not smart enough? I have two fucking master's degrees. And people question, they question me. They question my decisions, my wherewithal. They question, I mean, come on. Just because I choose to drink all the time. And that's the other thing. When men choose to drink all the time, then they're lauded as these amazing figures. Bukowski, what a genius. What a fucking amazing person. But when I love drinking all the time, I'm a disgusting whore and, and I couldn't possibly have a point of view. Or just that inequality that it's cool when men drink and it's been cool right. since the fucking 50s and that whole madman thing. Look, let's all drink whiskey all the time. It's cool. But if a lady drinks whiskey, it's like, oh, what a... 
scared that is a woman who has you know critical thought oh my god like god forbid i make choices for myself and my family planning and my own uterus like what am i too stupid that i've been living in my body for 43 years but i don't fucking know myself you want me to have a baby like i love drinking i made a decision long ago not to have kids because i love drinking i could be like a person who just lies about it and has a kid and hates their kid and always says like geez how could have been something if you wouldn't have come along mommy could have been a famous poet if you never came but like why would you want to live that inauthentic life sure anyways so I like to be political through comedy because I don't know what else the fuck to do I I have so much anger about inequality and and, and I can't even imagine like there are people that and I'm a white woman like what if I was another color holy fuck I can't even imagine that like being a black woman like people don't listen to you because you're a woman but then they don't listen to you because you're black and I mean they weren't even considered people 175 years ago in our country which is insane to me and women even weren't considered people not that long ago so I so I mean that's that's why I have to do comedy because how else do you I guess I could write books (laughs) I don't know. Dumb poetry books. Uh, I don't know. I went off on a tangent. I'm sorry about that. No, that's great. That's great. I mean... (laughs) I rant a lot. (laughs) That's totally fine. I mean, that's your show. You're in the right place to do that. Yeah. I love ranting. (laughs) I mean, you know, the the, like white hetero male narrative that that dominates our culture is is just so pervasive and it's always been there and it's insane how every year you're just like it's 2017 it's 2018 and it's still just still dominating and there's no sense that that tide is receding other than now we're just calling people out for it but there's really no there's really no lasting impact of that you know those are on individual basis you know some some men have been lost their jobs or some men have been you know whatever no one's ever been charged for a crime no one's ever you know lost their livelihood well, there's, to the point where it hurts them really there's an entitlement that comes yeah. with being a white anglo-saxon male right. and when you look at churchill during the second world war and he literally said and maybe he was they say well he drank a lot before he said it but he said the superiority of the white anglo-saxon male like he's basically saying right. that we deserve more because we're white that's a real that's a real sentiment that still exists mm-hmm. and we call everybody snowflakes now because right. <laughs> we're like they, everyone feels so entitled to an iPhone 10. It's like, how many dead Chinese babies are inside that touchscreen technology? Like, right. is it, I, I have no idea how touchscreen technology works, but I think it's the dead souls of Chinese babies sure. like that are the swish left and right. I, I have no idea. And all the metals that we take out of the earth to create these things that to give, an, to give a 12-year-old access to all the porn. What the fuck? Right. Like, we're giving 12-year-olds all the porn. You think, and they're, oh, well, I have parental control on my 12 years. You get four, five, 12 year old boys together, they will hack every single one. They will have every single one of your passwords. They will be watching all the porn. They're, they're smart little fuckballs. They've been trained in this technology. You cannot right. turn it off. And it's, and then we teach them that you give a 12 year old access to all the porn, but no one's talking about it. And then they have these, then we just keep perpetuating the subjugation of women. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I just don't even so and I, how do you make I mean how do I make jokes about 12 year olds watching porn <laughs> like without without I have to learn how to do that well to be fair um, I had an older brother growing up so I had access to porn much earlier than 12 wow but like <laughs> was it on the internet or was it like no it was like VHS magazine right which was <laughs> I think it was a little I think that that's a little more innocent like right playboy and hustler and all that stuff like like now it's like I want 
toe-sucking lesbians that poop on each other. That's like a thing, right? And now, like and now it's, it's all with, a it's, thing. It's, it's with you everywhere you go. People you know, on the bus or every, everywhere in public now are, are, are seem more okay with doing that and just viewing it. And it's very bizarre. It is very bizarre. Well, then why do we need constant screen time? Like, what's wrong with us as a people that we need to be constantly entertained? Like we're, I mean, that's the thing is that 150 years ago, there was no time for entertainment because you were right. fucking farming and you were milking cows and making cheese and trying to subsist and be like a homesteader or some shit. And now we're like, we have so much free time that right. we've created like disorders and shit. Sure. Definitely. I mean, I, the, the craziest thing, and I don't know how to make jokes about it, is the hoarding that like we have like 22 million people now that are hoarders. And it's because we have too much like it is so fucked up to me that 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 we are so entitled to have so much that we have pe- people have housefuls of stuff is there's a fight on the street we got to tell them a story or make them tell tell them a joke but we have, we've got a whole like society of, of sickness that's grown out of excess like right. that's gross there are people that live in grass huts and still poop into you know open trenches right. all over the world and we're like I'm poor. Okay, so me as a poor American, I still have hot and cold running water all the time and a toilet to poop into? I am a rich person. Right. Like, are you kidding me? So, I don't know. The in, just the inequality that exists in the world is... It's scary to me that we haven't figured it out yet. And I'm like... And I don't know if comedy is necessarily the answer, but uh, what else do we do? Do we just stick our head in the sand and be like... You know, I love weed. Right. right. <laughs> Let's all get high. It's legal now. <laughs> so I should offer you some. Do you want to smoke some weed? Is that bad to do on camera? Is that? I have no idea. Is that bad to do on camera? Is that a, is that a thing? Is it? Well, like, <laughs> is it? Is, is there? A, I, I don't know. It's legal here. I smoke in this. I smoke at Mutiny Radio all the time. I love. I, I love weed. It's I mean, I know everyone else here smokes. I, I don't actually smoke. Marijuana. Oh, you don't smoke weed. I don't know if it would be interesting for the film for me to actually smoke on camera. Ha, um, <laughs> what, what's the reasoning? You just, I've just never done it. You just I'm don't do not it. Not much of. A, I mean, I've never been much into anything but alcohol. But uh, that's fair enough. When I was a teenager, I, I tried a little bit. Again, Ooh. older brother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I just never did anything for me. I guess I, I don't know if I did it wrong or not. But uh, <laughs> and then just as an adult, I, I mean, I'm. Not it's it's not something that uh, we, we really do in our we don't do in our house. No, hey, there you go. I don't have the I don't know. I don't know if it would help me or not. I definitely need to mellow out, but <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been smoking marijuana for so long. Like sure. and there's this new thing that I think that I have and it's it's this crazy new thing that I read on the internet. It's called cannabinoid hypermesis syndrome. And it makes you nauseous in the morning. So like when I smoke, I, I, I'm a habitual cannabis user since, sure. since 93, I would say I've smoked every day. Okay. Almost all that been for the past 20 years. I've smoked every day as much as I, all the time. Like when I wake up in the morning, I smoke a bowl Okay. and I just go about my day and I constantly smoke pot all day long. But I have this new thing that in the morning, sometimes when I smoke it, it makes me throw up like I have morning sickness. So for a while I was thinking like, oh my God, am I like an alcoholic now? Because I was throwing up in the morning, but I'd had like two IPAs last night, right? So I have two IPAs and the next morning I'm vomiting and I'm like, what is going on? And so I looked it up on the internet and it's this new thing. And it's people who've been doing daily usage for 20 plus years are getting this weird morning sickness thing. Huh. It's weird, but we've never studied it. So 
I'm, I'm like, hey, sign me up for the study. I, t- t- I, I just thought I was alcoholic, and now it's like, oh, good, I'm not. <laughs> I was, I was getting worried. But I've actually drastically cut my alcohol consumption. People that know me ten years ago, eleven years ago, when I moved to the city, mm. like I was drinking whiskey, and now I just drink beer, and sure. and, uh, and not even like, you know, uh, some IPAs, but not too many. Never more than four. Because then I'm just ripped, um, and, and now we're more than like five PBRs. So that's not that bad. When I used to like, I mean, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I used to be a much much bigger drunk. But I, a lot of my comedy is about um, alcoholism and um, okay. being like really cool with it. Sure. <laughs> like sure. being like, but it's about it's about the responsibility. So I got a DUI. The reason I moved to San Francisco was that. In 2007, I left my job, and then I left my husband, and then I got a DUI within like two months okay. of each other. So my my life just basically, I just like destroyed my life. And I went to Burning Man that year on a gifted ticket, and I worked for this one group, and they said, you should move to San Francisco. And I was like, they they really, you know? So I did. I moved to San Francisco. Where did you move from? Uh, San Diego. Oh, okay, time. San Diego. Yeah, okay. so I've never lived outside of California. Okay. But, um, you know, my, I kind of my whole life just went, and when I was in my DUI classes the following year, I learned, uh, they were like, what is your plan that you're never going to drive drunk again? And I raised my hand and I said, I will never drive again. And they uh. were like, and the guy and everyone else told their plans. And the teacher goes, the only person I'll never see again is Pam. She's the only one. She's the responsible one. She's, she's never going to drive again. She's the only one I'm not going to see for a DUI again. And it's absolutely true. Like I drove drunk probably 3,600 times in my life before I got my DUI at 32, wow. okay? And I flipped a car free three times and it was a big deal and it, it was it was a very sobering experience. But, sure. was, but I decided I'm never gonna drive again because I really like drinking. And then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna move to a, I was either gonna move to San Francisco or I was gonna move to New York because yeah. I needed public transportation. Right. I had to get from place to place. Right. So I moved to San Francisco because of that Burning Man thing. And I haven't been back to Burning Man since 2007. But, you know, it did change my life. And a lot of people like, oh, Burning Man, blah, blah. But it was a life-changing experience. And I have been three times. And each time it was awakening and changing. And I'll never do it again. Because if I have $1,500, I'm going to Greece or Australia. I'm not going to the fucking desert to hang out with a bunch of rich, hippie douchebags on their fucking... <laughs> it's, my, I, it's my adult... And it is. It's like adult summer camp. And yeah. good for them. And I used to do it. But now I just live the life I want to live all the time. And I don't have to worry about that. Um, but so I moved here and I sort of own the concept that I like drinking. I'm not going to have kids. And um, a lot of my jokes are about one of my favorite jokes is about, you know, I've chosen to be an alcoholic. And if you take away Roe v. Wade, it's going to really fuck this kid up. And I go through like this. Mm. I say like, you know, when it's born and then when it's what happens when it's four and it, it starts with, oh, you know, if you. If you repeal Roe v. Wade uh, and you force me to have a baby, uh, I'm going to need some new tools so I can drill some holes in my boyfriend's trunk so the baby can breathe while we're hanging out at the bar. You see, like, (laughs) I'm a nanny. I can't afford to have a nanny. If you put the baby in a a trunk with a sleeping bag, very safe. It's not going to go anywhere. Like, it's going to, no one's going to steal it. It's in the trunk, right? Super responsible decision for a drunk person. Uh, If you make me have a baby, it's going to turn like four and it's still going to need one of those backpacks so it doesn't run out into traffic. It's like, my mommy hates me. (laughs) She didn't want me to be here. And then, you know, it's seven years old and it's in first grade because it's been held back once already. And the teacher's like, oh, your child said that you love alcohol more than it. And I'm like, this is a sippy cup filled with vodka, you dumb bitch. I didn't want the kid. And then it's 
it turns 12 and it starts doing ketamine and I'm like, who's your dealer? I can take you to Burning Man. And then it turns 15. We can get to know each other. It'll be fun. And then when it turns 15, <laughs> it teaches me if you've been doing cocaine for more than 24 hours, you don't eat your boogers. You smoke them from the mouths of babes. And then at 17 years old, you know, it finally dies. It finally dies um, from a speedball, one of those cocaine, kind of meth, maybe uh, heroin things in the vein. And I'm like 17 years a 17-year late-term abortion. <laughs> it was your choice, America, to put it through rehab four times, not mine. I didn't I didn't want it, but I, obviously I can't make decisions for myself, so that's fine. But so that's what, what am I... Like, I think that it's responsible for people to say, I'm an adult and I choose to use alcohol and therefore I choose not to hang out with children. Sure. It, and sometimes I people, I feel like society's like, but you needed to have kids. You need to do this. This is what your life should be. And I'm like... And I don't want that. So fuck right. you. Right. Like Amy Schumer can do it. <laughs> she talks about being a drunk all the time too. But you know, I don't know. I, there's a stigma against drunk old ladies. There's a, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a stigma against people that choose not have children. Yeah. Um, whether they're married or not. It, it, is, it, is, it is weird that there's so many people that expect you to have a child, you know, right around when you get married or before you get married or whatever. Um, you know, I have several friends who, you know, are married been married for years don't have kids that's their decision and i've never been like oh you gotta have kids because i don't care it's not my problem well and overpopulation (laughs) and and water issues and drought and and being able to make a positive member of society it's a lot of fucking work and i think that people don't recognize or realize because it's so easy to do because it's the easiest thing and the hardest thing to do having sex is something we want to do and we like doing it and that happens to make babies now we decide now that we really should have the ability to have and it's impossible it costs so much money like how can anyone have a baby just all the equipment that it takes now like the stroller is like a thousand dollars. A stroller? I, I can't even. I don't know. It just. Um, I don't understand th- these ideals that society hold us up to because of certain. I don't know. Just the, the pressures of of how how are we successful or not successful as people, and right. and how we're meant to feel less than if we don't have as much of. Right. Or whatever. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I love foie gras and everything, but, you know, I can still buy it with food stamps. It's fine. Like, you can, <laughs> it's absolutely doable. I can go to Whole Foods, a little bit of foie gras, smear it on some bread. Actually, it's rich in pants food, but it does, you know, calorie for penny intake. It's pretty, it's well priced. It's good. I mean, I, lo- I love foie gras. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not, like, I, I really did not mind that it went away for a little bit. Yeah. I was fine. I was like, that's fine. I, there's other amazing foods I can eat. The sub, you don't like the subjugation of ducks and geese? Oh, I don't care about that's that. where you draw the line. I have, no, I have, <laughs> I have no personal preference. I just, I was like, well, I don't love Fogwar enough to even have a dog in that fight, honestly. Gotcha. Like, Fair I enough. I don't, it's not, that's something, that's something that's on my shopping list. Right. I, yeah, I, I used to be, so when I was married years and years ago, um, I used to drive a Lexus. I was very bourgeois. So I, like, I was a former bourgeois corporateer. Like, I, I actually worked for, like, a corporation and I sure. sort of sold out. I, I used to own a theater company years and years ago. And before that, I was a, a teacher. Uh, but I got out of teaching in 2001 because I saw No Child Left Behind and I saw what was happening with mm-hmm. Bush and I saw yeah. that we were actually 
removing critical thought from our education system. Like I saw it. I was a teacher. I was a credentialed school teacher in 97 from 97 to 2001. And I taught both high school and junior high special education. And I could see it coming down. Here comes the train coming down the track. And it was like critical thought. No. A, B, C, D. Teach to the test. Right. No more critical thought. And that is. And and then it's so funny because I went back to graduate school and 2008 through 2012 and so when I was teaching kids in college and they were products of No Child Left Behind and they couldn't write a five paragraph essay and they could not explain to you why they liked or disliked something they would be very quick to tell you I like it I don't like it you say why they're like hmm. like they can't Right. defend or explain or use examples. They can't think of the past and apply it to the now. Mm-hmm. They can't, you know, take, it was just calling critical thought from our education system because if you have people not questioning, they're much, you can just lead them with products. Sure. Because they're like, oh, and we confused them all. We gave them, oh, you have four choices. You have Burger King, McDonald's, <laughs> Wendy's, or Taco Bell. And like you have four choices. Look at all the choice you have, America. You have so much choice. You can get Levi's or Guess or Gap <laughs> or Old Navy. You are so in control of your lives and the future and everything. You can have an iPhone or a Samsung. Wow. You can have Verizon or T-Mobile or whatever. I mean, they constantly give us the illusion of choice, but we're really being told what to think and what to do. And so that's, so getting back to comedy, we're employing critical thought and we're employing, we're the Shakespearean fool. We're employing critical thought against what's happening now. We're trying to make people see their world in a different way to, to maybe have a little empathy for other people, but you're the Shakespearean fool because it's punching down. Like I can be really political and talk about abortion if I make fun of myself first. Like right. I have a whole thing about my facial hair. Yeah. And once I talk about, I have so much facial, my boyfriend is just, he's like a general in the army against my facial hair. <laughs> and he sits there and he plucks me. And so I'm so old now that I have to put on my bifocals to try to pluck my face. <laughs> so I like literally need his help. And he's just so great that he's really joined the fight. But we were standing at the bus stop the other day and the sun was on me and he was just being really, he's like, he's like, I love you so much. You're so beautiful. There's just the sunlight on your face right now. It's just, you're so gorgeous. There's this one hair. Hold on just a sec. I've got the tweezers. And I'm like, not at the bus stop. What are you doing? But he has really joined the fight against my facial hair and I appreciate that. <laughs> but once I p- punch down on myself, then I can like right. talk about what's happening in the world that really bothers me. Sure. Because how else do we, I don't know, how else do we express ourselves? Because that's the two thing, too. As a woman, being able to use humor is a new thing. I mean, Joan Rivers was the first woman in, com- the first woman ever to be pregnant on stage, mm-hmm. on TV. So that was huge and right. like groundbreaking. And, and for women to stand up and have free speech and say whatever they want is a pretty new thing. Right. So... I feel like that my anger and what's been happening, the only, I'm just so glad that we do live in a place of free speech where uh, I can talk about critically the things that make me so angry. Sure. A Melania Trump. Oh my God. You know, I don't even go in on 45 himself, but I will make fun of his wife all day long. Like, because she never speaks. You know, she speaks four languages and yeah. she still won't talk. Like, what is wrong with her? And I don't even know where she's from. She's either from Slovenia or Slovakia. I, I don't know. Uh, she won't say anything so but they both border hungry 
And my God, she's starving. Like, I feel like she hasn't eaten this entire presidency. She won't open her mouth for anything. Not a bite of food. Not to say a word. She looks so pretty when she, when she frowns. So, like, I, 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 that's how I sort of like to change my political lens is to, you know, talk about his wife. Or sure. talk about something from a feminist perspective. Do you think that um, it's also for you as a woman it's it's easier for you to target melania rather than like say if it was a male targeting her absolutely um i have another joke about um her and bulimia which i think is hilarious but i mean i come from a background of of bulimia and and body dysmorphia issues for a year and and that's one of the problems i have with women in society is we're taught to just be just look pleasant right just look, can you just look pleasant? Can you just smile and look, ple- can't you just be pretty and silent oh, and look ple- ple- pleasant? You know, it's like no one listens to you unless you're skinny and pretty. Right. And I was taught that from a young age that a woman's looks are everything. And if you are ugly, like not only will no one listen to you as a woman, but if you're ugly woman, oh my God, oh my God. That nobody, you're not even worth anything if you're ugly on a woman. How? Because all of our worth is in our appearance and our hair right. and our ability to be flirtatious and coquettish and quiet and all of these things that have been put into femininity and all of what we're supposed to be. And I'm like, fuck you. I hate makeup. And it, one of the things that makes me so angry is I've done this a couple times too, where I'll wear makeup for like a week. And everyone treats me differently. Like, mm. it is crazy the difference and of how people treat me when I, quote unquote, put myself together. Right. When I do my hair and put on makeup and wear an outfit that matches and isn't jeans and a t-shirt <laughs> and doesn't look like I'm a skateboarding 12-year-old boy. Like, when I <laughs> shave my legs, which I, I don't do. I love my hairy legs. Um, because, fuck you, Gillette. What, you want to make money? I, I couldn't show my legs in 1904 without being a fucking slut. I can't show my ankles. And now if I don't shave all the way up to my twat, like a four-year-old girl, I'm still a disgusting slut. But now it's like nobody wants to sleep with me. And what is my worth? Gillette, the best a man can get. Fuck you. Why do we... So we can sell more razors? We're going to make women feel bad about themselves? I have a good friend. And she told me, and I remember it's in college. She thought a boy broke up with her because she didn't pluck the mole on her arm. She's like, I have this big hairy mole. And I think that he saw it. And that's why he broke up with me. And I'm like... Why are you buying into this bullshit that all we are is what we physically represent? Fuck you. We are people. We have thoughts and feelings. And it's not just about how you can fuck us. We're real. We're people. Like, it just makes me crazy. And when I'm treated differently, when I'm prettier, and I, and I, I, I know it. I'm not an ugly person. But I was taught that the only thing is to be pretty. And so I'm, now I'm like, I just, I won't. Where it's one of the reasons why I'll, I'll I'll never I'll never be famous because I'll never move to LA and I'll sure. never wear makeup and I'll never say I will never buy in to what the patriarchy says women are supposed to be. Fuck you! You don't tell me what a woman's supposed to be. How do you know? How do you have any idea? Hmm. Really? You you know my body? You're a dude. You don't have ovaries and fucking like. Ugh! It just it. I just don't think that. I mean, I love telling people what to do, but I don't think that anyone should ever tell me what to do. Sure. So, you know, maybe I, I, I'm a narcissist just like Trump. Maybe I have some, maybe I can empathize with him because of like the narcissistic disorder that I might or might not participate in that he per- definitely participates in. I definitely participate in my own narcissistic personality disorder. The hubris of us asshole comedians to get up on stage with just a microphone and be like, ha ha, I'm, you know what? I'm going to make you laugh. I have nothing. I have no music. Right. I have, 
I just have me and a microphone and I got this shit. Like we're insane people. It's literally, it's, it's an insane thing to want to do and to think like, I got this. <laughs> I mean, what is, what is your insight personally and, and with the number of comedians that have come through here? Like, is, is there a common psychological trait that, that is pervasive with, with comedians? Like, why do we want to go on? Why do we want to do this? Because we're just sick, disturbed people. Do you think it? I think it's disturbance. I think it's, I think it's, a, I think it, everything boils down to some moment in one's childhood where we felt not listened to sure. and not appreciated for whatever reason. And it's like, oh, you're not going to, you it's the feeling like an outsider and then saying, oh yeah, I'm an outsider. Fuck yeah, I'm an outsider. I'm an observer and I'm going to talk about this from the outside with my own perspective. So I'm going to talk about the inside while being, it's, it's embracing the outsiderness. Like it's, in, it's embracing the concept that I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not part of the in-group. I'm part of the out-group sure. and it, you can't, you can't have critical thought and I mean, it's hard to be critical if you're in the in-group. It's hard to be critical of what you are but if you're outside of that, it's more. It's easier to be critical. So, I don't know. It's it's just embracing the outsider. I think is why we all. I, I mean, I can tell you, my moment. I have a couple moments as a child where I was like, I felt like an outsider, and I think that it made me want to be a comedian. Uh, one was that um, I have an older brother, uh, and we. I'm very different than my family. They are all very re- Republican, and I'm a call me pinko liberal, and. Uh, but I remember being a child and my brother would do this thing where he'd hit me and he'd be like, and I, and then I, I wouldn't say anything. And then he'd go, shut up, Pam. And I'd be like, I didn't say anything. Shut up, Pam. I, I didn't, I didn't say, shut up, Pam. And then I'd get in trouble. And then my parents would be like, Pam. And they'd always say, we're, we're right here. We're right here. You know, you're so loud. We're right here. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but no one's listening. I'm like, yeah, you hear my voice, but you're not listening to me. And I constantly felt, we hear you. We're right here, Pam. We hear you. And I'm like, no, you don't hear me because you're not listening. Like, if you were listening, you would understand that my brother is being a fuckbag right now, and he is messing with me, and you're getting me in trouble, and you're making me feel bad. So when I respond to people fucking with me, so I'm not allowed to, so I'm taught as a child that when people are fucking with you, you're supposed to say something to the teacher, but then I get all this negative influence of like, why did you say something? You're not supposed to tattle and then all the kids are like you're a tattletale you're a tattletale and I'm like you're mean to me and I'd stand up and be like you're being mean to me and I don't want it anymore and they would be like you're a crazy person why are you yelling at us and I was like ah so you can still see it's so triggering to me even now and this is like in third grade I threw a brick through a window because everybody was calling me fat and we had to change for for PE in this room and we'd just done those presidential fitness bullshit things and we had to hang on to this bar and it was really high and they'd lift me up and I couldn't even stay up for a second. I just had no upper body strength and everyone made fun of me and we got in there all, Pammy's fat, she's a fatty and then we're all standing there and I just like, I was just, I couldn't express myself and I ran outside and I was in this and I picked up a big brick and I threw it through the fucking window and (laughs) and this is the best part. I go back around Everyone covered for me. The teacher was like, what happened? What happened? And no one would say anything. And I threw a brick through a window and they all knew it and everybody covered for me. And then people started, then that was the beginning of my reputation as a badass. People were like, you cannot fuck with, I mean, we didn't use swear words at the time because it was a Christian school, but I sort of got this reputation of like, she will fuck you up. And, And so it solidified my place as an outsider. And I've sort of always kept that all the way through even when I tried to be a cheerleader and I tried to be an insider I was still an outsider 
and it was like and then it was just frustrating like why am I not good enough why am I not good enough but so all of that over years and years has like I feel like I have something to say and I want people to listen to it. But then the problem is that because I get so effusive and crazy, people don't think I'm smart. They think I'm just crazy. Right. Because then I'm like the person on the street that's like, blah, 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 like you sure, know, sure. with the dirty suit and the, you know, the pigeon poo on his shoulder and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So anyways, that's, that's why I do comedy is from those times being, you know, when I was little and people didn't listen. And they were mean. People were kids. You know, I was a kid that was bullied. And I get it. I was dorky and kind of fat and kind of weird. And I wanted everyone to like me so much that it was really easy to fuck with me. Like, I kind of get it now. But, I mean, they were so mean. Like, I'm so glad that the internet didn't exist back then. Because I, I can barely handle Facebook as an adult. And I can't imagine how mean they are to each other now. Because the internet's not real but it's still real, you know? Like, you can really hurt people. Oh, yeah. And if that would have existed when I was... If that would have existed in the 80s and the 90s, I'd be dead. I would have committed suicide. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't have been... Because just taking the ridicule from people in real life was hard enough. Right. But, like, if I had to take it on that secondary front of the internet, oh, fuck me. Like, I... Poor kids these days. I have no idea how they survive cute little snowflakes <laughs> yeah what else do you want to talk about about specifically comedy I, I get off on all of these fucking sure. critical tangents no it's fine I, I mean <laughs> I'm just uh, uh, so you, you've been here at Muni Radio for seven years or uh, no you've been doing it I've less. been the director for five since June of 2013 is when I took over as director but okay. I've been doing shows here since October of 2008. So okay. 10 years of radio Second. in this space, five years as the person in charge. Okay. Yeah. Um, Crazy. And did, did, did Muni Radio always, always kind of have a focus on comedy? No, no. Um, it's always been a music station. Years ago when it was Pirate Cat, it, there was a okay. uh, terrestrial tower that was highly illegal and uh, who was broadcasting on the regular uh, terrestrial airwaves without an FCC license and uh, when Anthony Bourdain came here for no reservations and had a bacon maple latte we got very very uh, popular and the FCC came after us and fined us $10,000 and then the guy who was in charge then fled the country for other reasons and so we just changed the name to Mutiny we said we are no longer Piracat we have no affiliation with that we are Mutiny Radio and we changed it all up and that was in 2011 it, when that all went down. And then 2013 is when um, that administration sort of, they said, we can't do it anymore. This is crazy. And I was like, I'll do it. And people were like, this is going to, and it's been five years. It was, the place was falling apart. Like it was sure. not like, I mean, literally falling apart, like at the seams, but metaphorically it was not making money. We weren't, there was, we didn't have enough shows. There wasn't like train. There was nobody. It was Everyone was sort of giving up, and I was like, I will never give up, never surrender. <laughs> so that's how that happened. And I I went pro bono to make it work uh, for a couple months, and then I started taking a really small stipend, and now I still have a really small stipend. Sure. But um, trying to keep San Francisco cool and weird and free speech alive is really important to me, and fostering 
um, new comedians and and giving them the stage time and um, the ability to listen to themselves later and to help them grow. I, I love joke workshops so much. Yeah. It's every Monday from six to eight and people do four minutes and they get four minutes of commentary and I take notes and I take good notes. Like I really pay attention and, and it's, it's modeled after my, um, my master's program when, when we would have workshops for poetry or for uh, fiction. Nice. And it's that same model of um, sort of the compliment sandwich where you you say something positively constructive and then you give them the real meat and then you say something nice at the end, put a little mayonnaise in there so it <laughs> slips right down. But then it's also about being specific in your critique. It's teaching yeah. people to, because it only helps people to think about other people's jokes and to think about joke construction and to help other people with joke construction and to write tags and to be clever and think of puns and to help one another in that way, right. sort of open our brains, you know, as, I think that comedy is starting to be recognized as a legitimate art form and I think that's new and that now with all the Netflix and everybody's been paying attention I think that people are actually saying oh this is an art form and I hope someday that um, I could help write a syllabus to make stand-up comedy an interdisciplinary Bachelor of Arts where you would take a bunch of theater classes and you would take theater history specifically comedy and you, sure. you would learn about microphones and you would learn about poetry and you would learn about crafting language you would learn about story arcs you would learn about old story arcs and new story arcs you would learn about just Shakespearean fool you would learn about Commedia dell'arte you would do you know it would be there would be a lot of history classes. There would be a right. lot of theater classes. There would be performance-based classes. I'd make everybody take a dance class. And just right. how do microphones work? Like a physics class based on sound waves. So all of that, I feel like I could create like a 172-unit, four-year you know, course to... Because that doesn't exist right now anywhere. There's no BA in stand-up comedy. There aren't even... You can't even get an MFA in stand-up comedy. It just doesn't exist because it's not seen as a legitimate art form right now. I think it's right. starting to be seen that way. But I think that's also one thing, I mean, as, as, as painful as it is to try to be a stand-up comedian and not really understand, like, that there's no road, you know? <laughs> like, there's no direct saying, okay, if I start here, I will someday get here. Yeah, there's but and, and if you standardize it to a point where it's like, it's a course and you can major in it, and then what happens? Like, I have a, I, if I'm a, you have a, if, BA in if comedy. I'm a comedy major... That's, is that going to get me into a writing room? Is that going to get me, you know, like Maybe. stage time? Maybe. It could, I mean, it could get a, a, a comedy majors. I could see people in business wanting comedy majors. I can see people, I can see people in sales. I can see big business being really excited about comedy majors. I'm sure they would because be. Because that just goes right into sales. You break the ice, you tell them, you know, you feed them the line. I think that corporations would love comedy majors. I also think that it would be amazing to, you know, for think tanks, that's a little bit big. But for, in LA, if you were trying to be an intern for SpongeBob or something at Nickelodeon, sure. you probably have a pretty good chance with a comedy degree over, say, uh, a creative writing. You know. But and, and I, I'm not trying to argue with you at all because I know it's, no, this no, is fantasy. But doesn't that doesn't like gating it behind an educational and, and degree? Does I mean doesn't that wouldn't that really screw over the people that are? You know, most of us are most of them are poor, most of them are poor right, but don't have access to certain resources, and and this is something what we can do, and there's there's literally no regulation other than like you know don't don't beat up an audience member, you know like anyone right. can come out and do it, and if you're good enough, presumably after much time you someone will find you and you'll find a place to be, but if if you put it behind you have to have a degree and then that's how you get into you know, working on a show or something like that, then I think that honestly gates it away from the most creative people. But they can still, but that's the thing is, if you get the degree, it can only 
help you because you have a better education about it. But you can create your own education yourself. That exists right now as stand-up comics. It makes me crazy in the city when people go, well, I spend this money at comedy college. I'm like, or you could just go to one of the 20 open yeah. mics every week for free. You know, it's like, how do you want... But it's how do people glean education? Now, right. I'm not a famous comic yet, but I was... <laughs> yet, yeah, it never happened. I was a ballerina <laughs> for 23 years, all right? So I have, like, formal education in ballet, in... Uh, I was trained, classically trained on piano for 13 years. I have a, my first undergraduate degree is in theater with um, emphasis in playwriting and a minor in lit writing and a minor in dance. And I would have had dance be a second major, but it didn't become a major until the following year. I, I mean, I've been trained sure. and, and I don't necessarily believe in education because look at me, I make a thousand dollars a month running a radio station and I'm really highly educated and I've spent a lot of money on my education. And I understand now that education is a racket because you can go online and you can get a syllabus. Right. Like I could ostensibly make my own college and put it out for free and say, here's the 172 units that I would put together. Right. Here's the physics class and here are the texts that you can read and, you know, put it all together. It's all out there. That's the thing is all of the Greek philosophers, Socrates is out there. You can read him. You can read Kant. You can read Descartes. You can read Nietzsche. You can, God is dead. Long live God. You can, you can study all of it. It's all there now. And it isn't behind a wall because we've taken down that wall. Now, do people learn better sometimes with a teacher? Absolutely. Are we paying in an education because we're having someone help educate us? Absolutely. You're, it's not just keeping the education behind closed doors. It's having the right teacher who's passionate about it to be able to help you along your own road to knowledge. Of course. So, and I think now that we have made it that college degree doesn't really matter or how much did you learn or are we making smart people? I'm telling you, like, when I was in graduate school, I was teaching a lot of college kids, and they were dumb. I'm like, how did you get into San Francisco State? How did you get in? How did that happen? Like, you can't... I'm like, how do you even feed yourself? Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't... I just I just can't even. It's like something they would say. Yeah. I'm, I'm just... Yeah, I'm very surprised. I would agree. Yeah. Uh, but, I don't know. I don't remember what we were talking about. I'm so, sorry. Uh, so... <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I've only been to Joke Workshop once, and that, that's the first time I came here, and, and I, I love the space, and I love Joke Workshop, and I, I like, I mean, I love the programs here, and um, I mean, that's one thing that's that's nice, is that I, you know, right now, I'm a very solitary person, I'm a stay-at-home dad, I'm just with someone who's inarticulate all day long, oh. I don't get a lot of, um, you know, dialogue, of course, that's productive, and one thing that's difficult about me doing comedy is that I don't necessarily have good feedback as to what i'm doing whether it's good or bad right and a lot of times i'll do a set and it's like not a great set or it's a good set or whatever but i don't know why and i don't know what worked about it or you know there's every time i do a set i'm always surprised at what the parts of the jokes people laugh at they don't right. laugh at some punchline necessarily they'll laugh at certain parts of my setup or i'll you know whatever or maybe it's a weird gesticulation but i'm always shocked and i film them and i watch them I'm like okay well that was a good set but i don't necessarily know why it was good or bad and it's difficult as a comedian, especially, you know, for me, I'm, I'm very, again, I'm a very private, quiet individual. I don't put myself out there. I don't walk up to people and say, hey, everyone, I'm here. Like, let's all have fun. You know, I walk into the bars and I'm just like, oh, everyone else is a comedian. I'll just sit in the corner and wait. You know, mm -hmm. I, I rarely introduce myself to people unless on the few occasions I see someone who's really good. And I just, I just like, you know what? I need to tell that person that their set was really good. Yeah. I don't necessarily tell people when their sets were bad because no, uh, no one wants to hear that. No one we wants all, to hear Everyone it. knows. But I would, but it's, but it's weird because I feel like I, I, I want, I would like more of, you know, 
feedback and I like more of a you know after you come off stage people say oh you know this joke worked but that didn't you know whatever you know give you a little here's a little bit you could fix or you know your timing was off here whatever yeah because sometimes I see comedians and they're, and they're they add, they have like one good quality or two good qualities but they don't have all of them you know and I think right. we, right, we right, kind right, of have right, to right. robot them together right. cannibalize them I see, I see comedians with so much confidence and charisma and I'm like wow you but can... they have no idea how to use a microphone like well, yeah. the microphone will be down by their chest like they'll be doing yeah. they'll be doing this maneuver you know I saw that last and week they, you can't hear them at all mm-hmm. and they have no idea how a microphone works it's like sweetheart if we can't hear you we can't laugh yeah. like and they've got it and they'll swing it around I've got another comic who constantly does this and he doesn't I keep telling him and he's he keeps oh, he's slapping hitting. and you hear it in the microphone and I'm like <laughs> I'm like, oh, baby comic. Like, I, we can hear you slapping your hand and it's distracting to us and it makes us not laugh. And he keeps being like, why are people not laughing? I'm like, because right. you're doing this incredibly distracting thing that you just don't even realize. Right. And until you're up again and again and again, it's hard to learn those things, which is why... I mean, someone has to tell you. Someone has to tell you. So I'm good with microphones because I've been trained on microphones since I was three years old and I've sure. always been on stage and yeah. there's always been, you know, the, using the diaphragm and when you're singing and you're, you always look out to your audience. I mean, I love doing shows at Cobbs when you can't see the audience and the lights are in your face and you're on a big stage because it reminds me of my youth when you just like, <laughs> you like mug to the audience. It's like you're talking to all the audience and you're looking at them and you're doing your little act. You can't see anything. You're just yeah. pretending that you can see them. Exactly. I excel at that. Like, pretending that they can that I can that I'm looking right at them right. like I love musical theater so much and it, it really taught me how to be insanely loud also cheerleading was also really helpful with that like I I loved cheerleading I love being able to be incredibly loud and not destroy my voice because huh. of the techniques that I'm using you know but microphone skill is a huge thing. Like when people will start yelling and they don't take the mic, they go, they don't take the mic. You know, they, you have to take the microphone away from your lips when you start getting louder. Right. And that's just stuff that comes over time unless you have been raised in theater. Right. Whatever. And, and most comics, they walk into the room. They've never been in the room. They don't, they don't have access to microphones sure. or amplification amps or anything like that. So they really don't have any time to practice or figure that out right. on their own or at home or anything like that. Because I know it can be nerve-wracking when you come to a like a venue and you're like, oh, I didn't realize like there's no stage, or I didn't realize like the right. microphone is like a shitty microphone, or right. you know circumstances that are beyond your control. Yeah, cordless mics always fuck me up. That's why I go to OMG on Tuesdays. One of the, I mean, I the reason I really like that room, OMG, and I mean, I like the people and I like the camaraderie and whatever. But the <laughs> real reason I go there is they have a cordless mic, mm. and I just don't get enough practice on cordless mics, and they always fuck me up. Like every time I've done cordless mics, I'm like, it'll it'll be out, or I'm too close to a speaker, or I do something like something happens, and so the more time I can get on cordless mics the more comfortable I feel because the bigger you get as a comedian, you never have a cord. You're all cordless. Right. So, I, I mean, I love a cord. I mean, because then you can actually use it as a prop or you can mess around with I mean, right. I don't know. Microphones are a huge... I have a microphone tattoo oh, wow. on me. But it's not from... It's not from comedy. Don't get it twisted. I was also, <laughs> as I'm wearing the shirt, a uh, legendary karaoke performer. You probably weren't even alive. Uh, in 1997, I'm joking. Uh, you're so young. Though. In 97, I went to this California State Karaoke Finals. And I won a bunch of contests in Woodland and Davis and Sacramento. And I got to go to the state finals of karaoke in 1997. And it's one of the highlights of my whole life, actually. I got to sing in front of 400 people. And I did not place or anything but I sang in front of four I did my big spender number and I had my chair dance and I like did my little I had a little hat thing I did because of and I performed the 
fuck out of that song. And I had so much fun. And I was just like, there are 400 people here. <laughs> and I just, I just, I love karaoke so, 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 so much. So this is my karaoke microphone that I got tattooed. And I got it tattooed even before I did comedy, actually. So... Yeah, that's it's. I'm 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 OG with microphones. <laughs> so yeah. What? Oh, the tattoo. Yeah, there's the, uh, and it t- spins around, hmm. and then there's a, a knot in the mic because there's always a knot in every chord. There's a knot. Like it's, it's metaphorical. And this is great. So when my tattoo artist did the part down here, I'm like, oh yeah, give me a quarter, quarter inch jack, and he goes, you know, it looks like a, a little dick, and I was like. Yeah, that's perfect. Like this is my this is my dick. Like I can talk into it. And he's like, "You sure you want me to make a little a little dick on?" Yes, fucking do the little dick on me. Yes, it's, it's like that's all my power comes from, from the little dick on the end of my quarter inch jack. Yeah, that and my wonky Nemo fin on my vagina. I have a tiny fin. I have a tiny vaginal fin. Like one of them's really long, like a long butterfly, and the other one is tiny. And I feel like Nemo. Like that's where all my magic comes from. <laughs> like his tiny little. <laughs> Little wonky fin. I love it. I love my wonky fin. I, I speak. I, I I talk a lot about my body on stage because I feel that it's political. And you know, in the '60s and '70s, you couldn't talk about your butthole. Of and all of those feminists did all that work so that I can have butthole jokes on stage. And I'm really, really proud of the work they did, so that I can do that. <laughs> First speech. <laughs> um, can I? I want to ask about visibility because uh, when we started, you talked about how you don't like to be in front of cameras. Yeah, I hate it. And uh, and you've from what you've discussed, you know, you, like karaoke and uh, come from a performance background, and I, you know, I think that you and I share that um, because you don't necessarily know that I also like I very much don't like being in front of people. I don't like being on camera. I don't like performing, but yet I am I am in the same boat. Like I I was raised. I was in marching band. I did I did I've done two musicals. I used to do you know uh, chamber choir. Uh, honor band you know all these performance based things that drove drew, drove me into being, being then being a filmmaker sure. and deciding I'm going to be a filmmaker I'm going to be behind the camera and I've, I've you know I've done that and it's and I stepped away from like I didn't really want to be in front of camera but then I've also do these things like I, I I never admit it publicly but I do like karaoke I just but I'm but I'm one of those people that like I act like I'm real cool about it like I'll go. I don't know if I'm gonna perform, <laughs> and then like I pick like an amazing song that like I know I'm good at doing. Hell yeah! And I'm very coy. People, people are. Like, what are you gonna do? I'm like, I'm not gonna tell you. Be surprised. <laughs> it's like it's kind of an asshole thing to do, because I'm gonna do it. Sure. And I'm gonna perform. And I want to perform. And I want people to love my performance, as you do. Yeah. But like it's there's there's and, and then now I'm doing this where I'm like I'm on camera. I'm on front of stage with a bunch of people telling jokes in a, in a venue where I don't necessarily know that I'm good. Mm. And and then the visibility aspect of like, I'm a male cishet, cishet. I've done it. I'm a, I'm a cishet like Asian guy who doesn't necessarily look like an adult. Doesn't really carry himself as like someone who is articulate or intelligent. Why would you and, say and, that? <laughs> but that's what I was saying. You see, you you express shock at that. Yeah. And you know, this is, it's the same thing of like I just I've been raised to be invisible, oh. and I've been raised to just not make a scene. Sure. And I don't feel there's a lot of uh, self worth that I don't have, and a lot of self esteem I don't have. And, I, and this is stuff again I talk about on stage, yeah. built into my jokes, so that like you said, you, you punch down a little bit on yourself, and people will kind of accept you a little more. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not like, hey, look how great I am. Right. Uh, yeah, but it, it, but there's this commonality and and I know there's a lot of comedians that do that, um, but you know there's something to be said about like 
we we say we don't want to be seen we don't want to be visible but we do these things that are like you know shouting out like look at me look at me you know like accept me and validate you know the things that i can do right my difference is that I just don't like my visual image. So like, I love talking. I love performing. I love, and that's the thing is the only reason I don't like the camera is that it's recording the ephemeral. Sure. And I love the ephemery of theater. Live. And I love the ephemery of comedy. And I love that it is real. And I love recording it because it, there's still an element of it. It was, re- it was recorded and it was live and you're listening and you have your own picture in your head as to what it is. And it still maintains the ephemery of it, even though it's literally recorded auditorily. Sure. But when you have a visual recording of it, I, I just, everything changes. Right. It's like watching ballet on TV. It's fucking weird. Or watching a theater. We're like watching Sweeney Todd on TV. That's weird. Oh, like a, a stage like production. Like a stage production. Yeah, watching yeah. a film stage production. Yeah. It's never as good. No. It's never, ever. It, you can't even like... It's a it's apples and oranges. It's yeah. a completely different thing. And and I feel the same way about comedy and performance. I love performing, but I just don't... I love that moment of performance where we're all there together mm-hmm. and we're live and it's happening and anything can happen and you can fall down or you can fart or, you know, or you can make fun of someone in the front row or, you know, there's just... Anything can happen. And that's what I love about the art form but when you record it I don't know it's just the only recordings I like of theatrical things are when they're kids like if I watch (laughs) Kids Under Construction from when I was in fourth grade holy fuck that was a great and I have Little Christmas Lamb from when I was in sixth grade I knocked it out of the park I played Christy I was in sixth grade and I got the lead and I had all these solos in front of the whole school and it was at one of the times where I felt like the most made fun of and it was like, I am the star of this show. I am the star of the Christmas pageant. And it was really awesome and I loved it, but I tried to main, I like tried to stay very humble about it and everyone still made fun of me. But I look at that and I look at the little Christmas lamb and I'm like, I had a ton of lines and I was in sixth grade and I was good. I was acting my little ass off. And, um, so those are the only kinds of like um, recordings that I still sure. enjoy. Yeah, that one and the there was a VHS tape of the 1997. I was in um, uh, I was in a chorus line and I played Larry the dance captain. I was 25 years old and I you know I was still doing ballet. I had the best ass like, and because of the beginning of the play, like Larry the dance captain and the director and the choreographer walk back and forth across the stages they're watching the dancers so you basically got to watch my ass for like 20 minutes it was awesome i 